morning, everyone. Good morning. Every Jewish service has or should have three parts to it. Prayer, which we call yearning, what we don't yet have or what we have that we long to appreciate. And learning, Torah, wisdom, where in some way, shape, or form, all of us submit ourselves. We surrender to some degree our, our autonomy or the self-sense that we know it all to hear the wisdom of someone else. It could be one person, it could be the Dharma, the Buddha, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, the vast civilization known as Judaism that has bequeathed to us its wisdom, its accrued experience and advice for how to live a more holy, sacred, appreciative life. And the third part, which is of course, turning, or Gimilut Chesed, how we take it out into the world. How we move from yearning and learning into manifesting and making it real. Yearning, learning, turning. We're in the learning portion now. We're learning Torah. The longest advice column in Western civilization's history. <laughs> Torah is not only the repository of our people's rituals and sacred dimensions, but through its nomos, its law, and more importantly than its nomos, its narrative, more important than the nomos, the law, the narrative, because each and every one of us knows as parents or as friends, you can say to somebody what your values are, but they don't care what you say, they care how you live. Every parent knows you can give a whole book of wisdom to your kids and say, this is what I believe in, and then they say, well, great. So how come you didn't live this way? Our children learn more about what they should do in the world from how we are than what we say often. And hopefully those two things are in alignment. But the narrative of the Torah, the stories in the Torah, and principally the stories in the book of Genesis, the 50, the 50 chapters are, are the first of the five books of Moses, are full of stories about how to be in the world and how not to be in the world. I think all of us would be in agreement that when we look at the story of Joseph and his brothers that really comprise the last 13 chapters of the book of Genesis, 37 through 50, we're going to be in the middle of that. Those 13 chapters begin with an episode that many of us would say, you know, not the best moment. Not the best moment. Joseph comes to the brothers, whether he's a tattletale or not, whether he's egocentric or not, whether he's narcissistic or not, all of these things that have accrued in understanding the character of Joseph. He comes and parades himself, lords himself over his brothers and says, hey, look at me with my shiny technicolor dream coat. You guys like it? I wore it today in honor of Joseph. There you go. Look at me. I'm Sandra D. I'm Joseph, I have big dreams, and one of my big dreams is that you are all going to come and bow down to me. Hey, can you handle that level of jealousy? And they couldn't. And certainly, without exonerating them, we can understand their feelings, but hey, throwing your brother into a pit, not a good idea. Throwing your brother into a pit and selling him down to Egypt, also not a good idea. And so, Joseph, of course, and the story of Joseph's resilience, which we'll touch upon a little bit later, Joseph an amazing character, right? Joseph, who is in the dungeon, he's in despair, he's in darkness, and makes his way up, maybe the first self-made person in the Torah, 
from rags to riches, he is pretty down and out. And by some miraculous turn, he winds up being the second most powerful human being in the world at a time when he needs to be. And isn't it good and isn't it lucky for the brothers who come looking for food because they've been starving and they come down to Egypt and of course the way that the text unfolds is so brilliant and beautiful and literarily exquisite. They don't recognize their brother. Many of you, I'm reminding you of the story. Many of you already know the story. They don't recognize their brother, but he has them exactly where he wants them. Vulnerable, needy. He's got all the power. They have none of it. And oh, how the tables have turned. Look what we have here. A bunch of brothers who don't see that I'm their thrown-in-the-pit brother who happens to be in charge of whether they live or die. Hmm, let me see if I can play with them, Joseph says. And play with them he does. You've come here to spy on the land, Joseph says. You're a bunch of spies. No, they say, we're not spies. Us, we're just a bunch of brothers. And then they happen to slip in, and we have a father at home who's still mourning for the son that he lost. And we as readers are watching the story unfold, knowing, as we do, the end of the story, but we can't help it. Joseph is in disguise, and it's all so perfect and tense, and, and he's so brilliant. He says, no, you are spies. In fact, I'll tell you that you're spies. I'm going to keep one of your brothers here, Simeon. He's going to stay here with me, and you go back. You go back. And on the way, he puts the money, right, that they had paid for the grain that he had given them. He puts it back into their, into their grain sacks. And they come back, and they say, oh, my God, we're in such trouble. He's going to think that we stole, and Simeon is in the prison. What are we going to do? And the only way that we can come back to see him is if we bring Benjamin back. And any reader knows that this is a remarkable test. Because, of course, Benjamin is the younger brother of Joseph. The two of them, the only two children of the beloved Rachel, Jacob's first love. When he saw Rachel, he fell in love. And all three other wives, one and two concubines, but all of the other children are second fiddle to the children of Rachel. And so Benjamin now, he has set up the perfect case. Will they do it again? Will they allow Benjamin, right, to be taken? And Jacob, of course, says, no way. I already lost my beloved son, Joseph. No way you can take Benjamin. And they all say, okay, fine. And they're quiet for a while. The text is quiet. A couple of verses later, everybody's hungry. And they say, well, what are you, nuts? Dad, Reuven steps forward and says, Dad, if we don't go down, we're all going to die. There's no food here. We've got to listen to what this crazy viceroy of Egypt said. We've got to bring Benjamin down. And so I was like, no way. And Reuven says, you know what? I'm a smart, I'm the eldest brother, I'm Reuven, I'm the oldest one in the family, I'm the leader. I'll tell you what, Dad, if I don't bring him back, you can kill my kids. And Jacob's like, that's why you're not going to be the leader, right? That's just not a, that's not a, what? But then Judah steps in, right? Just as Judah had stepped in previously in chapter 37, when Reuven had had the idea not to kill Joseph, and Yehuda had had the idea to sell Joseph. Reuben steps in and saves the day. We'll talk about that in one minute. But I want to fast forward now, now that you're up to speed, because 
I was watching a Christian preacher this week giving us a whole rendition on Vayigash. He talked about the Parsha and I happened to be listening to him and watching him. And he had a very ingenious uh, way of thinking about this morning's Torah reading. So here's what he said. So fast forward now to, to this reading that we're about to read that Lucian will read for us. Vayigash Elav Yehuda. Now Judah will come before Joseph. Essentially, Judah has saved the day. He has told his father that, no, I won't give you my children, but I myself will be a stand-in for Benjamin. I won't let Benjamin be harmed. I will stand in for him. Not my children, not someone else, but I take full accountability, full responsibility. I place myself as the assurity, as the collateral for Benjamin. In other words, the buck will stop with me. I'm a leader. It doesn't matter what other people are going to say, Reuven, all the other brothers. I myself will be the leader. And sure enough, in chapter 44, verse 18, this morning's reading, Judah does step forward. And he says to Joseph, unknown as Joseph. Now listen here, he says. You have told us to bring Benjamin down. And now you want Benjamin to stay with you. Why does he want Benjamin to stay with him? Because Joseph brilliantly, he added another element. As the brothers thought that they would be leaving Egypt scot-free, having brought Benjamin down, Joseph put his favorite divination goblet into Benjamin's bag. And now the brothers are beside themselves. Benjamin is going to be kept. His father, Jacob, is going to pull his hair out from sadness and mourning. And Judah steps forward. After all, he told Jacob, he promised him that he would step into the breach, that he would not let anything happen to Benjamin. It was going to be on Judah. And Judah steps in, and this Christian preacher, this Christian preacher said, of course Judah steps in. It was Judah's fault that Joseph was down in Egypt to begin with. Judah was the one who came up with the idea at the end of chapter 37, let's just throw him into the pit. It was Judah who felt guilty. And that's why Judah promised himself. That's why Judah put himself forward in chapter 44 here and not any of the other brothers. Judah feels the burden of having made that mistake. It was Judah who sold him for 20 silver pieces. The preacher said that that was connected. I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, so, so interesting, right? What say you? Makes sense, right? That's not the Jewish perspective. The Jewish perspective is, is that Judah had the power and the audacity and the courage to step in at this moment and at the moment with Jacob earlier and say, you know, that Reuven idea, Reuven's idea was not the right idea. I'm going to place myself in because Judah knew. Judah knew. Not the power of guilt but the power of sympathy. Because between the time that Joseph had gone down to Egypt, something radically transformative had happened in Judah's life. Anybody know? Chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. Judah, as Joseph was descending to Egypt, Judah himself descended to another place. Judah left the family too, just as Joseph had left the family. And for a full chapter of the book of Genesis, placed right in the middle of the Judah and Joseph narrative. Judah knows in his own person what it is to lose two sons. 
Judah lost two sons in a chapter that makes its way into the Joseph narrative to build the character of character of Judah's heroic gesture. Judah doesn't feel guilty that Joseph was, was sent down in that way. Judah feels he knows the feeling of his father Jacob. He can feel deeply into what it was, what it must have been like for Jacob to lose his child. Judah's character is not filled with guilt, but with space to feel the reality of another human being and the consequences of his behavior. Not because of guilt, but because of an opening of his deep sense of accountability. Not because of guilt, because guilt is an IOU, but sympathy is something that is much more subtle and much more profoundly born in a character when they see with radical clarity how it might have felt for them had the same action occurred to them. How might they have felt? And in this way, Judah now is fulfilling the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Live and love unto others as you would have them live and love unto you. Parent unto others as you would have them parent unto you. Marry unto others as you would have them marry unto you. Father, mother, daughter, congregant, Jew, Gentile, human. Be human unto others as you would have them human unto you. Judah's character is not filled with an overwhelming sense of like, oh, wow, I can't believe it was, must have been my fault. But Judah gets it more than the other ones. How else can you explain Reuven's ridiculous assertion that Jacob would feel better and more at peace, as Reuven said, if something happens to Benjamin, then you can just take your grandkids. Judah gets it in his own person. This is the greatest, greatest lesson that we as Jews in the wake of this last week's anti-Semitism have to bring to the world. We know what it is to be hated. So fight for others the way we would have wanted them to fight for us. That's the whole Torah's justice imperative. You yourselves know what it is to be in the land of Egypt. It's not a law, it is a story. It's not do this because I told you to, but because you know it in your own person. The Jews are to be the light unto the nations in our tradition because we ourselves know the darkness of what it is to live on the margins and to be seen as the scapegoat. So we say, don't let anyone else be scapegoated. Don't let anyone else know what you yourselves have known. Judah, in this moment, steps forward to Joseph. He doesn't even know it's Joseph. And he says, I won't let happen to my father what happened to me. I won't let my father lose two boys, two children, as I too lost two children. I know that pain viscerally in my gut. And that's the source of his profound courage in this moment. He takes accountability because he has had the time and the experience to reflect upon how he himself might have felt. This is the moment, of course, that unlocks Joseph. This is the moment that says to Joseph, someone knows how it might have felt. Maybe he also knows how it might have felt for me to be thrown into the pit. Maybe he knows. And in a very subtle way, and here we're coming in for a landing, everybody. In a very subtle way here, he invites a criticism of Joseph's own game. You, Joseph, who are playing the game now, 
whomever you are, of course, Joseph knows that he's Joseph, Judah doesn't. But Joseph has to be thinking to himself, how much pain am I causing my father right now and my brothers? How would I feel if I were in their shoes? This game has been a great game. It has shown me the medal. It has shown me who Judah could be. But I myself have not given thought for a moment. Well, how is my dad feeling right now thinking that maybe Benjamin might be lost? I can't wait another minute giving my dad pain. Mm -mm. Judah's speech unlocks Joseph's empathy and sympathy for his own father. And the circle is closed. And the story will be resolved. This morning, I would like to call for the open up, the communal aliyah this morning. A number of things that are embedded in the Judah narrative that I think each of us could walk, I think I want to walk out with this week as wisdom. Number one, take a moment to think about what others might be feeling before we act. Obvious. I don't do that well at it all the time, so I'm going to take that one with me. Two, the power to take accountability for your actions and not play the blame game. In a world so frequently now where people are scapegoated, where we look outside of ourselves, we blame this one and that one and this one and that one, and sometimes we have to diagnose problems by saying, who's causing it? We might lose, and often do lose, the power that comes with taking responsibility, being accountable, saying, what is my part in this? And how might I effectuate a change? And lastly, and this one is, I think, for me personally, I'm going to... There's something in Judah's moment here that as the hero of the story takes tremendous courage, Judah has to be willing to put himself on the line in order to make change happen. He has to be willing to step into places where power might be, not be willing to listen. He has to be willing to take a risk for the sake of saving the family, saving others. He has to be willing to confront power. A structure that is bigger than him, but for the sake of the truth, Judah was willing to step in and say, I'm sorry, Mr. Viceroy, but you're acting unjustly. And I'm being willing to put myself on the line for the sake of what's true and what is just and what is right. Those three kavano, those three intentions, are what I'm making available here through the learning this morning. If that wisdom or advice is something that is relevant for you in your life, at this moment, wherever you are, whomever you are, I invite you to please rise and come stand with the Torah this morning for the first calling up, the open up.